Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. We begin season four of That Said with a very special guest, Professor Heather Cox Richardson. Professor Richardson will discuss her new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes of the State of America, which chronicles the rise of authoritarianism in the United States and offers suggestions on how best to combat it. Professor Richardson teaches history at Boston College and is a nationally recognized expert on American political and economic history. She is the author of seven books, and her opinion pieces have appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Guardian. Her widely read newsletter, Letters from an American, discuss the intersection of history with modern political issues. Professor Richardson has received her BA and PhD from Harvard University. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to That Said. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. So tell us a little bit about yourself. In a nutshell, you've got an illustrious academic career, but set the audience straight a little bit on where you are coming from to be where we are today. I'm in mid-coast Maine. I live on the coast of Maine with my husband who's a lobsterman, and I study history, and I teach, and I write books, and there's not a lot else to tell, except I think I'm the luckiest woman on earth because I get to keep a record of this era for this country. And you get to eat lobster. Okay, so here's a confession. I will eat lobster, and my husband will eat lobster. We would never seek it out. We would both rather have a hot dog. But maybe that's because we've spent so much time looking at it. Well, you know, if I end up on death row and they give me my last meal, it's going to be Maine lobster and corn and coleslaw, I think. Well, I'm glad to know that because the next time I come to where you are, I'll bring you some lobsters. Throw them in a cooler and bring them. Because we have them, you know, lots of them right near us here. But literally, we need something else first. Right. It's a date. <laughs> Tell us why you wrote this book. This book, for the listening audience, in some sense, I think is a continuation of how the South won the Civil War, your prior book. There are a lot of themes that sort of run through or threads that I saw in looking at both books. But tell us why this book now. Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about the threads at some point, because I would make a different argument about it. The book that is just coming out now was initially supposed to be a series of essays that would explain the things that my readers ask me all the time. What is the Southern strategy? How does the Electoral College work? What is impeachment? When did the party switch sides? You know, sort of the, the political questions that people ask all the time. Literally every day I get people asking these questions. So it was initially designed just to be a series of answers, really, like I say, a teacher, a writer who who answers questions. But what I discovered was that as I started to write these essays, they took shape into three sections. You know, how did we get here? Where are we? And how do we get out? And so I wrote these 30 chapters, 30 short chapters, and then I put the book aside 
for three months. And when I picked it back up, it was really interesting as a writer. It had never happened to me before. It felt as if the, just as my readers do, as if the book's chapters had been having a conversation without me being there. And what they had decided was that this book was going to be something quite different than I had envisioned, and that it was really going to make a larger argument about democracy and authoritarianism and the power of words and of history. And when I realized that, I basically threw out about 80% of the original book and rewrote what you have in your hands now. So the book was initially designed sort of to be an extension of the letters from an American that I write every night, but it was never going to be a collection of those essays. But it became something I think is its own product and in many ways is less a reflection of me than it is of my readers because, again, it felt like it sort of talked to them more than it talked to me. You're right at the outset that this book is about how a small group of people tried to make us believe that our fundamental principles, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, coupled with one's right of self-determination, as embodied in the Declaration of Independence, wasn't true. But importantly, how democracy has persisted throughout our history, despite these attempts to, to undermine it. And that you say, we're at a crossroads. And that's sort of where you pick up. So talk a little bit about this small group that have persisted in trying to undermine democracy, those who fought against it, and why you think we're at the crossroads that you articulate in the book. Well, I've, I think the crossroads at which we sit right now is the choice either to expand and continue American democracy or to abandon it in favor of what some people in the country now call illiberal democracy or Christian democracy, as it has been, for example, articulated by Vladimir Putin or of Russia or Viktor Orban of Hungary, who have quite explicitly said that they believe that liberal democracy, the kind of democracy that we defined in the Declaration of Independence, is obsolete. And they say it's obsolete because the idea that people should all be equal before the law and should have a say in their government tears down old distinctions between genders, for example, between races, uh, creates a, a world in which the churches are far less important and patriarchy is far less important. So they have said that they no longer believe that the world should be and will be governed by liberal democracy, and they want to replace it with something that is far more traditional and rejects the idea that we're all equal before the law and should have a say in our government, which is what the Declaration of Independence set out as a, as a concept of government. So I think we're at that crossroads. Are we going to continue liberal democracy? Or are we going to abandon it in favor of Christian nationalism, which is essentially what illiberal democracy looks like in America? And that crossroads, though, speaks really deeply to American history and to different patterns that have got us to this place. So the argument of the book is that a very few people who reject the idea of democracy, reject the idea that we should be equal before the law, have weaponized both language and our history to convince people to walk away from democracy. And the book follows the story of how they have led us to a point where for the beginning of 2016, with the election of former President Donald Trump and then his 
administration. And then even after that, the, the MAGA Republicans have continued um, to attack democracy. It follows that trend, but then it also says, wait a minute, here's how we can reclaim democracy. So that's what the book sets out to do, is explain how a very few people can destroy a majority support for democracy and how that majority can regain the upper hand. And it does have an uplifting ending for the listening audience. It's not all doom and gloom. But one thing that I started thinking about when I was reading the book, and I agree with your your thesis, is though, is this moment unique in our history? Did we not experience this around World War One and the jailing of Eugene Debs and the socialists and the 1930s and the 1950s? Is there something in your analysis that says, this is a critical and unique time. This crossroads is different than other crossroads that we've encountered over our history, maybe starting with the Civil War. Well, I do think it's unique, but I don't think it is unprecedented in this way. That is, these two themes, the idea of everybody should be equal before the law and should have a right to a say in their government, has always been challenged by those who insist that, in fact, people are not all equal and that only a very few people should rule. And that those two contests have gone on throughout American history from even before the founding and certainly through the periods to which you're referring. What makes this particular period different than the ones before it, I think, is that we have a major political party that is openly rejecting the concept of democracy. So even in the past, when you had Andrew Carnegie, for example, writing the Gospel of Wealth and explaining why wealthy people were the ones really who should concentrate America's capital and use it to do things like build libraries and and opera houses, um, even in those periods, at least the major political parties paid lip service to the idea of democracy. That now has been abandoned by the current-day Republican Party, which is embracing the idea of a Christian nationalism and the rejection of the idea that people should be treated equally before the law and should have a right to say in their democracy. So I think we're at a different place right now because of the embrace of an illiberal version of government by a major political party and that injection of Christianity and that rejection of democracy is, I think, different than we have seen before. Same threads, but we're at a different, a a more extreme version of it. How did this happen? How did we get to this crossroads? Meaning you write that Americans were supposed to be different. We were not supposed to have fallen for the authoritarians that occupied Europe. We were separate and special. How did that happen? And then maybe part two of my question is, how has the use of language, perhaps in this day of social media and the presence of language bombarding us, how have we gotten to this point? So I love this question because when you say we were supposed to be different, where that comes from is an idea that really sparked the academic tradition from which I come. And that is the idea after World War II that a lot of academics started to wonder why America hadn't fallen either to socialism or to fascism. And when you say we weren't supposed to do that, I once put that in writing and somebody said, well, I don't, I don't want to read anything she writes because she says we're exceptional. And I said, wait a minute, 
I'm not saying we weren't supposed to fall to it. I'm saying this was the premise of the school of academia that looked at what they called at the time American civilization, for example, or an early precursor to what is now American studies. So you had all these academics looking at the United States and saying, wait a minute, why didn't they end up becoming fascist or communist? What was different about them? And what they came up with, and there's a whole bunch of books on this, is that Americans were different than the rest of the world because they were pragmatic and they didn't get terribly hot under the collar about things. And basically, they just liked things to work. So they really were not very susceptible to demagogues. And what I'm saying in this book is that's absolutely not the case at all, that the theories we have about the rise of demagoguery, for example, or of uh, people who would become authoritarians or totalitarians is universal. The, The techniques that one would use are universal. What I'm suggesting in this book is that America did have a particular inoculation against that, that not all other countries did. And that is because of the nature of our Declaration of Independence, And most critically, because of the fact that marginalized Americans had always, from the very beginning of the articulation of the idea that people should be equal before the law and should have a right to a say in their government, from the very beginning, they insisted on keeping those principles front and center. So that while in other places it might be possible to forget those ideas, in the United States we have never been able to forget them. We have always had to focus on them. So what I was arguing in the book is that the reason that the United States didn't fall ultimately to fascism, which was what was really on the table in the 1930s, 1920s and the 1930s, is because they had in front of them the NAACP saying, hang on just a minute here, you're lynching us, and that's not okay. And they had a number of uh, people articulating constantly the idea that that was not the theme of our government. So that brings up your second question. So how do you tear that apart? You tear that apart by insisting, in fact, some people are better than others. And you tear it apart by using language to create a disaffected community that you can then point to an other and blame them for your lack of continuing power in a society and say, well, really, you people, my followers, are better than those other people. And you develop a rhetorical strategy to re-stratify Americans society and say, well, in fact, yes, some people are better than others and do have the right to rule. And there's a number of stages to that, but it is a way to break up those principles that we have managed to keep front and center, even when we were not honoring them throughout our history. And Isabel Wilkerson writes in Cast about this hierarchical system and how important it was for the forces that that I'll call, you've called, anti-democratic to find uh, a foothold in the country. I was reading this book by Jeffrey Tubin about the rise of white nationalism, starting with Timothy McVeigh and Oklahoma City bombing. And after the Oklahoma City bombing, Bill Clinton spoke about it. And what he said was, talking about the white supremacists, he said, I know these people from my days in Arkansas. And if people feel their identity is in danger of being dislodged, then nothing else matters to them. And you write, you quote LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in response to observing some, I think, racist vandalism. He says, if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best black man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Is that where we are in some sense? 
Yes, although those two things are slightly different. I mean, I think what LBJ is talking about there is the the layering of class on race that is uh, something he was very aware of in his experience, the idea that if you are a, a person of some wealth and power who's trying to build a following, you are able to convince poor people who might otherwise organize with people of different races to join with you simply by convincing them that somebody else is the other. Clinton's comment, coming as early as it does, is really interesting because that idea of creating that underclass, if you will, or those people who are disaffected from society and feel like they ought to be important and they aren't anymore, and so long as you can make them hate somebody, they are free for the taking by somebody who's trying to amass power. The next stage of that is making that identity part of them. And that's a different thing. I mean, it's it's the next stage of the rise of an authoritarian and eventually a totalitarian, because you're not simply making an argument. You're not simply saying, well, you know, hate those people because they're the ones who are making it so you can't keep tax dollars. That's an argument. There's a difference between that and a movement that welds those people into a group of individuals who are willing to attack others and who have so internalized that argument that they're better than those other people that it can't be separated. And one of the things that interests me about the moment we're in now is the fact that that creation of an underclass and the idea that they are dispossessed economically and culturally, sometimes religiously, socially, the idea of that was a long time coming. I mean, the really the process of creating that group of people begins in no later than 1981, but you can really push it all the way back into the, the 1950s even, and it was articulated in 1937. So it takes a while to create that underclass, and certainly theorists like Eric Hoffer pointed to this when he wrote True Believers in 1951, when he talked about how you get the rise of an authoritarian. He says, you know, who cares? Like, there's authoritarians everywhere. The question is, why do people follow an authoritarian? And so he talks about the creation of that class. But what interests me in the moment we're in is the ability of somebody like the former president, Donald Trump, to take that group of people who were ideologically inclined in one direction and certainly had been fed a a rhetoric for enough time that they believed it, and to turn them into a group of people who had so deeply internalized it that they can't be separated from it. And that brings up a whole different level of theorizing, if you will. And that's the question of how you take ordinary people and turn them into right-wing gangs. And there were a lot of studies about that, uh, studying the rise of fascism. And one of the pieces that seems deeply applicable to the United States is the idea that rather than convincing people to become right-wing revolutionaries, for example, by lecturing to them or by giving them new ideas, it's almost a a bottom-up vision in the sense that you convince them to get together to complain about potholes or masks or books in schools, something that is right in their faces, prices of peaches, you know, and I'm making that up, but something that is right in their faces. And they get together and start to to be in the streets and to complain about that, yell at people, eventually start to hurt people, and they start to become a unit that then is very susceptible to the same ideology that they would not have been susceptible to had they not already made those social connections and invested sort of violence into that vision. And that's what Trump managed to do so brilliantly, is to take 
an ideology and a group of people to mirror what they really wanted and then to create an identity for them that now is such a part of them that that it's hard to imagine them being broken away from it. And that's one of the reasons I think this moment is different than we've seen before, because there are not many examples in the United States where you can think of somebody having done that successfully for a lot of people. You can see them doing it for a few but for a lot of people, I think this moment looks a bit different than we've seen before. Interesting. There perhaps was on the flip side of this an opportunity in the 30s to organize the left into a movement. But, of course, the forces of government wouldn't allow that. Whereas here you've got this movement on the right emerging in the ways that you said and the government mechanisms to deal with it don't seem as effective as they were in smashing the Wobblies or jailing Eugene Debs or passing the Sedition and Espionage Acts and making it illegal to mail socialist materials in the paper. They just used the forces of government to destroy it, whereas now it seems like there's a blind eye or benevolence or something to it. it It's bonkers, isn't it, when you think about it? Because if you think about the number of people in the United States who ever really adhered to a real left perspective is so much smaller than the number of people we even had in the John Birch Society, for example. But what I think you're pointing to is the really interesting developments throughout our history, but really taking off after the Civil War, in which we get a link between race and class. And one of the things that made it so easy for the uh, legal system, for example, to crack down on the labor movement is the degree to which, after the Civil War, those opposed to black rights and to workers' rights managed to meld race and class together to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you start to give voice to workers, what you're doing is you're empowering people like African-Americans in the South to make decisions about the government that are going to lead to a redistribution of wealth. And usually in their cases, they were talking about voters voting for leaders who would you know, use infrastructure projects like roads and schools and hospitals to take tax dollars from property owners who were almost always white and to redistribute them in their parlance to those who would benefit from roads and schools and hospitals. And even though those people would be white and black, they portrayed that as being something that would redistribute wealth from white people to black people. And that idea of redistribution of wealth being a constant threat in the United States is still powerful enough that we have the former president complaining that the people who have indicted him are Marxists and Marjorie Taylor Greene claiming that we are a socialist country, which if anybody knows anything about the history of Marxism or socialism would find that completely laughable. But what they're really doing is they're identifying the idea of letting everybody actually have a say in their government as being a key to a redistribution of wealth, which because of our racial history almost always has a racial component to it. And you point beyond the civil rights effort after entering Reconstruction to give poor blacks the opportunity to of self-determination and the view that they were not economically able to hold their own and therefore we were just going to be redistributing. You have an interesting observation about in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education, that case which brought civil rights to education, and you said that the federal government, which was the centerpiece of the liberal consensus, 
tied principally to economic opportunities now was tied to civil rights. And that was an inflection point. There was no longer consensus around the liberal consensus. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what is the liberal consensus and how does Brown fit into this through line that you first observe in Reconstruction? Well, that's a really interesting moment in so many ways, because coming out of World War II, both Republicans and Democrats adhered to this idea that there was a role for the government to play in regulating business and providing a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure. And if you think about the American South in that period, that's not a period when people are talking a lot about the Confederacy. That's not a period when they're flying the Confederate flag. They actually quite like the federal government. If you think about the spread of the popularity of FDR in that era, one of the complaints about FDR was that he didn't really bother to to build up a powerful a Democratic Party in the West, especially, but partly in the South as well, because people just love the Democrats so much they didn't really have to do that. So it's interesting to watch that Democratic base that loved the New Deal back away from it. And what really pushes that is when Truman begins to back the idea of desegregation, especially desegregation in the armed forces. But he goes beyond that with his Presidential Commission on Civil Rights, which calls for equality before the law, not only for African Americans, but also for indigenous Americans, for Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated during World War II, uh, for people who were not being treated equally before the American law. So the Democrats in the American South start to split away from the Democratic Party as early as the, well, as early as the 1930s, 1937, but they really start to form their own party by the end of the 1940s. The Republicans, though, pick up this idea of a government that should do all these things, and they agree with people like Truman and on their own hook begin to argue that that liberal consensus should include the protection of civil rights. And once you get the idea that that government that is active, that does all these things, you know, regulates business, promotes a basic social safety net, promotes infrastructure, and now protects civil rights, is the government with which the country is going to go forward. That gives you a wedge, if you don't like that government, say business regulation, to use race to break that coalition apart. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But a really key piece of this, I think, and a really interesting one, is the degree to which this plays out in pop culture. Because one of the things that happens during Reconstruction to sell this idea that, in fact, the federal government shouldn't protect equal rights for black Americans in the South is the rise of the image of the cowboy. So at the same time after 1871 that you have unreconstructed Southerners and Democrats throughout the country saying that the federal government protecting uh, black civil rights is socialism, which they begin to say pretty dramatically in 1871, because it's a redistribution of wealth. White tax dollars are going to have to pay, for example, for the Freedmen's Bureau. In contrast to that, you get the rise of the idea of the cowboy, which in Democratic parlance after 1866 and certainly into the 1870s, is a young man, a white man, even though we know that historically cowboys, about a third of them were men of color, a white man who wants nothing from the federal government, even though, of course, the, the cowboy can't operate without the federal government buying his product and putting in the railroads that move the cattle and protecting him against indigenous Americans. 
you have this idea of the cowboy as an individual who just wants to do it on his own, doesn't want the government, and is imposing his will on indigenous Americans, Mexican Americans, and, and women. And that image takes off in 18, that's 1871. We get people first talking about the federal government helping black Americans as socialism. The idea of the cowboy as a pop culture figure takes off in 1872 with Ned Buntline beginning to write about Buffalo Bill and having the, the plays at, you know, on the stage of Buffalo Bill. And it becomes huge theater throughout the late 19th century. Well, the reason I'm setting that up is because look at the United States after the Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954, what takes over the airwaves is cowboys on TV. You know, at one point in the, in the late 1950s, like most of the TV shows in the afternoon on the television are cowboys. You know, they're rawhide, they're bonanza, they're the lone ranger. There's all these westerns that are pushing the idea of this lone man standing alone against the government, protecting his women folk, fighting off bad guys. And the degree to which pop culture begins to feed into this idea that a real American is a guy who stands on his own, I find absolutely fascinating because, of course, it gets picked up by Reagan and his cowboy hat, and it gets picked up by George W. Bush and on and on, especially in the 80s. But but it's one of those things that I think people can grab hold of and say, oh, oh, I get this. I lived this. And it was so pervasive. And yet I didn't realize that in many ways it was about the government and about civil rights. Mm -hmm. Ron Brownstein, uh, we had on this podcast a year or so ago, wrote a book called Rock Me on the Water. And uh, what it is is how 1974, in his view, was a tipping point when we went from Bonanza and Gunsmoke and even Lassie to all in the family, the Jeffersons, that there was a shift there away from exactly what you're talking about, this notion of the cowboy standing against evil. And, of course, we historically know that one of the reasons we have North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming and Montana, places that had very sparse populations became states, was because of desire to bring that independent-minded, allow for slavery to expand into the West mindset into the Union to align with white nationalists who were in, in eastern states. Yeah. Yeah, that was 1889 to 1890. We get six new states, the biggest influx of states in 12 months since the original 13. But you know what's interesting about that observation about 1974? A couple of things. One is that I believe that is off the top of my head. That is also the year that Little House on the Prairie debuted, which is essentially a cowboy, you know, Michael Landon, who had been Little Joe in Bonanza, becoming Pa. And you think about the degree to which women, and I'm not the person who uh, has done the work on this. There's a wonderful woman who's got a great article in Jezebel on prairie dresses. The degree to which prairie dresses become sort of the pop culture moment of the late 70s and everything that that implies about the importance of that cowboy image and the idea of submissive women, even though, again, historically, uh, we know that that was not what happened with the Ingalls family, that Pa basically lived on the income that his, his wife and daughters brought in. 
And then we also know that Laura Ingalls Wilder and her, especially her daughter, Laura Ingalls Wilder hated FDR and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, was a libertarian who worked with Ayn Rand. So that image is only that, an image, but it was so incredibly powerful at the time. But the other thing that's interesting about 74 is the fact that it's the year before 75. And what happens then, of course, is we've got Bruce Springsteen coming out with with Born to Run, which is sort of a new kind of anthem from the youth of industrial northern cities. And we also have people like Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers, and I think the Charlie Daniels Band uh, backing Jimmy Carter for president. And I've always wondered what would have happened had Greg Allman not gone to prison and the uh, Leonard Skinner's plane not going down when it did, because you wonder about the ability of pop culture in that moment to have made a marriage, if you will, between the Springsteen fans and the Leonard Skinner fans. That's fascinating. And we see it a little bit now with hip hop and politics Mm -hmm. and social activism sort of following a a similar trajectory. But I'd like to pivot a little bit and have you talk about something which I found so interesting, which was this discussion of who is a conservative and who isn't a conservative, because it is now something which people talk about in these terms are very different than how Abe Lincoln referred to himself as a conservative. So can we talk a little bit about the conservation of values as a conservative versus the radical notion that the Declaration of Independence isn't as vital a document to our well-being as modern conservatism or the what we'll call the conservative movement is? Well, again, it, it is literally called the conservative movement because it's a political movement that calls itself conservative, but has never embraced the Burkean principles that came out of the period uh, surrounding the French Revolution. And so, yes, so what I was doing with that is voicing my opposition to calling today's movement conservatives, today's MAGA Republicans conservative, because they're not. I mean, if you look at the principles of conservatism as they were laid out by Burke, at really great length, I have to say, that might not always be the most page-turning sort of laying out, but um, he talks about government and what a government is supposed to do. And of course, he's reacting to the fact that the French Revolution is based in ideology. And he has a real problem with that. I mean, he actually supported the American Revolution, but he looks at the French Revolution and he says, you know, there's a problem with running a government based on ideology, because pretty soon you're trying to make people fit the ideology rather than the ideology fit the people, which, of course, is he's watching happen across the channel and very concerned about the direction that the French Revolution is going. In contrast, he says, what a government really should do is promote stability. And in order to promote stability, it ought to focus on what works to do that. And it should preserve the traditions that make that happen. So, you know, the the social traditions, the family, the churches, the techniques of stability that preserve a society. And it should pivot. If something doesn't work, it should try something else. It should not be ideologically based so much as stability-based. So if you take those principles, first of all, the people who are currently trying to tear up the government that we've lived with since 1933 can't by any stretch of the imagination be called conservatives. And when, in fact, they first took that name on themselves, um, a number of reviews of early William F. Buckley Jr. 
work said, you know, these, these are enfants terribles. They're not any kind of conservatives that we've ever heard of. But the reason I started the book where I did, which is with the discussion of the word conservative, was a little bit of a signal of where the book was going to go and what it was going to do. So one of the points that I was trying to make in the first chapter, which I think is called something like, is, was Lincoln a conservative or something like that? I can't actually remember what the title of it was. Because it started as the people ask me that question all the time. So that was actually a title that I kept from the past. For people who are listening, Michael is actually looking at a copy of my book, which he has and I don't have yet, so he can tell you what the title is. But what I really looked at was how people started to use the word conservative in the United States, because when Burke was talking, the United States was not terribly concerned with conserving anything because it didn't have anything yet. It was such a new country. So the word conservative really doesn't get much traction in the United States until people who are opposed to the spread of human enslavement begin to call out the Compromise of 1850 and say, you know, we don't agree with uh, the idea of the federal government going into the states and insisting that people who live in free states return people who enslavers claim to own, because, of course, the enslaved people couldn't testify on their own, and then have to return them. We don't agree with that. And so the pro-slavery people called them radicals. And they said that they, the pro-slavery people, were conservatives. And it starts to go into the lexicon that way. Abraham Lincoln builds off the work of abolitionists and says, no, 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 we're the conservatives. Those of us who believe in the Declaration of Independence are the conservatives because we are conserving the true principles of this nation. You are the radicals. You are the ones who are trying to destroy the Declaration of Independence and the rules that the founders laid down. We are the conservatives. And so what I was trying to do there was to emphasize the concept that protecting the right of equality before the law and the right to have a say in our government is, in fact, a fundamentally conservative position in our government. It also, of course, is one that nowadays is perceived as quite radical. And it is a sleight of hand that I was doing in part in honor to Lincoln, who did the same one, but in part to set up the idea that what words we use really matter. And the way we use our history really matters. And that what I was going to be setting out to do in the book was to talk about the use of words and the use of history in a way that it has been weaponized against the idea of democracy, but also to talk about how to reclaim it so that it could be used in favor of democracy the way that Lincoln did. And that's why the book both starts and ends with Lincoln. And the three parts of the book are, and I'll read them, Undermining Democracy, Part 1, The Authoritarian Experiment, and then Part 3, Reclaiming America. So we've been talking a lot about Part 1 and 2. How did we get to this position where our democracy has been undermined? And we've seen it through this authoritarian experiment. You set it out really nicely in the book saying there's sort of essentially three parts. One, that leaders uh, in authoritarianism, leaders don't try to persuade people to support real solutions, but instead reinforce their followers' fantasy image and organize them to a mass movement. And once they internalize part two, once they internalize the leader's propaganda, 
it doesn't matter what pieces are proven to be lies because it has become central to their identity. And having now this warped part three history, the authoritarian is able to galvanize them into a movement. So, of course, that pulls a lot from the theories of Hannah Arendt, who studied the rise of totalitarianism after World War II. And the key part, I think, that I pulled from her that works so well in the United States is what you identified there, that one of the key ways that an authoritarian rises to power is by promising his supporters that he knows how to create this idyllic world that's based in the past, that's based in a past that we all know never really existed, but that in his telling did exist. Make America great again, right? And by the way, that wasn't Trump's phrase. That was Reagan's phrase before it was Trump's. Trump is nodding not only to the past, but also to Reagan when he used that. Um, And what Arendt identified that a totalitarian could use um, was the idea that there are natural laws and religious laws uh, that so long as they're followed, they automatically are going to create this ideal world again. And any deviance from those laws brings the opposite. So one of the key things that I'm making the distinction between in Democracy Awakening is the idea of what I call an authoritarian history. Everything was great back in the past, and all we got to do is we got to follow God's law, or we got to follow natural laws. We got to follow these old laws, and we're going to get back to that wonderful place that we were in the past, that what I would call a fantasy place in the past, that that kind of history is what I would call authoritarian history, although I didn't call it that in the book, but I would call that authoritarian history. And it's different than the real history of our democracy, which I talked about before, the idea that it's always growing, it's always changing, it's always a work in progress. But crucially, because of the foregrounding of that principle that everybody should be treated equally before the law and the accompanying principle that everybody should have a say in their democracy, that because of the foregrounding of that by our constantly renewing, constantly marginalized populations, the United States has managed to expand that definition of democracy since the very beginning. And that constant expansion of democracy to include first black men and then eventually to include women, and then eventually to include indigenous Americans, and and constantly growing, it's managed to keep our democracy vibrant. And that's what I would call a democratic history, one that recognizes that there is no permanent past. I mean, there is no permanent, wonderful place in the past, that it's constantly growing, it's constantly changing, and it is constantly dependent on everybody participating. The really different vision than that of authoritarians who say, all we got to do is what God tells us, and we're going to get to a perfect place. Wasn't it Buckley in his God and Man at Yale, the superstition of, of academic freedom, says if we only get away from this secularism and collectivism and move back to Christianity, Christian values and individualism, will be on the right track. And I think Bill Bennett, when he was education secretary, uh, followed the same path, and now we're seeing it in the efforts to uh, delegitimize critical race theory, it's a, it's a thread, is it not, Heather? It is. And, you know, part of me, and this is, I think, where being a historian can be a disadvantage. Part of me, it, it just gets frustrated, you know, because 
we've seen it. We can follow these threads throughout our history, and they're not that complicated. You know, it's not any great mystery. And when you start to connect the dots, part of me is like, really? Really, we're doing this again? You know, we know exactly how this is going to go. Could we just skip over this part and get to the part where we recognize that we're doing it yet again and we fix it yet again? Because it does feel a little bit like Groundhog Day to be watching some of the same themes coming up again and again. I will say that one of the things that I nodded to in this book that might be a surprise to people, but I think is important, is that when we think of fascism, and and I take real exception to the constant reiteration of the idea that we're living in a fascist moment nowadays because there's a lot of different aspects to fascism, but that, that concept that is behind fascism, the idea that, in fact, there are different grades of people, some people are better than others, and ultimately there's one person logically who's better than everybody else, We tend to associate that with the 1920s and, of course, Benito Mussolini, who is the one who theorizes it in so many different ways for so many reasons, considering his own background. But that idea that some people are better than others and have the right to rule, very simple way to put it, is deeply ingrained in American history. And the way you can really put your finger on that is the reality that Adolf Hitler, when he controlled Germany, looked to American indigenous reservations and American Jim Crow and Juan Crow laws to look at ways that he could incorporate those racial categorizations and those demographic categorizations into laws in Germany. And that recognition that the poison that became fascism didn't magically spring up out of Mussolini's head in the 20th century, but in fact goes way back even in American history to the concept that some people are better than others, I think is kind of an important one when we grapple with our own history. Absolutely. In fact, I started reading a book. I don't know, again, whether I'll be smart enough to be able to finish it and understand it, but uh, maybe you've seen it. This fellow, Robert P. Jones, has written a book called the hidden roots of white supremacy and the path to a shared American future. And in it, he talks about Christian theology in the 14th century, talking about the inherent inequality in people and the basis by which they can justify evil perpetrated against those who were less equal. And so he's saying that as a, he's a theologian, forget about 1619, we're talking about 14th century and this notion that's ingrained in in Christian theology about inherently unequal classes of people and those who are not worthy can be mistreated because that's their plight. Well, I know absolutely nothing about Christian theory at all, so I can't comment on that. But aren't we really talking about the way humans organize societies? And the fact that some people will always strive for power. And what people like me study is how how they garner power, how it is possible for a small group of people to convince a majority to follow them or to convince a group of people who, who don't share their interests to follow them, and how race and class and gender all fit into that without necessarily making a binary. And that question of how you control other people, how you garner power, how you run a society, those are the epic poems in our history, in human history, right? No matter what society you're from, 
So at the end of the day, in a way, we are talking about humanity as much as we're talking about American history or American literature or any of the great examinations of the way humans interact. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. The The third part of the book, which I want to get to so our readers cannot be so pessimistic that, oh, my gosh, you know, so what do we learn since the 14th century? Hierarchical theory has been shaping the world. Now we find ourselves in the post-2016 era living in an authoritarian movement. The third part of your book is reclaiming America. And you have ideas about <laughs> I do. How, how we reclaim America. I know the songwriter Phil Oaks has this song called Power and Glory. And he says in it, talking of America, her power shall rest on the strength of her freedom. Her glory shall rest on us all. So to achieve glory, if you will, it's on us. But so talk about part three, reclaiming America, you know, views and perhaps prescription. Well, so I'm glad you are talking about that because when I reread this draft, the, you know, before the book came out and I got to that second section, you know, I got about halfway through it and I thought, this is really awful. I mean, are we ever going to get out of this? Like, I'm like, is anybody ever going to even read past the second section? Cause it's so depressing. But in fact, the third section is really an attempt to replace that narrative that has been so powerful since the 1930s and that really has torn apart our concept of democracy and to replace that narrative, that story with a different one and with one that I think is far more accurate because it reflects, and I hope it reflects this in the writing, it reflects not a world in which a few people control everyone else, which is really the theme of the first section of the book. And then in the second section of the book, we get those people trying to control others, but we start to get voices of resistance. And then critically from a number of immigrants at certain places in during the Trump years. And then in that last section, we get the recognition that American history is really about us. It's really about individuals demanding the promises that were made in the Declaration of Independence. And it walks us through American history as, you know, completely a flyby, if you will, because it's not that long a book. But looking at critical moments in our history in which it looked as if it were not going to be possible for people to organize and reclaim their birthright and watching how they did it. So, for example, creating the ideas behind the Declaration of Independence, which was not an easy thing to do, and selling those ideas to a population that wasn't at all sure it was willing to walk away from monarchy. And and then new voices saying, hey, what about us? And how do we get to have a role in this new society? Taking us right up through the present and trying to re re establish under our feet the reality of what happened in these different eras and and how people who were marginalized, who had been written out of the American promise of equality before the law, how they managed to grab that power and to convince the rest of America to come along with them. And I think in many ways that final section is, you know, I've said to people that writing this book was a funny book to write because on the one hand, it might be a pen to everything that we've lost, or it might be a rallying cry for everything that we can still win. And in many ways, that last section is, you know, a love letter to America saying, you know, the people who didn't make it into the history books 
except maybe this one, were the ones who at the end of the day got out of bed one morning and they didn't say, I'm going to change the world. They got out of bed and said, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to try and do the right thing just one more time and ended up giving us this incredible legacy. And so I was sort of hoping to to inspire people to carry that legacy forward. And you do, I think, ably when we talk about Teddy Roosevelt at the turn of the century and the suffrage movement in the 20s, the civil rights movement in the 60s, the New Deal, the Great Society. These are all examples of what Dr. King said. Dr. King said, human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle, the tireless exertions and passionate concerns of dedicated individuals. And that's sort of your message, too, is it not? That we need the tireless concerns of dedicated individuals to become conservatives, to reclaim the conservative principles that the Declaration of Independence embodied, life, liberty, pursuit of of justice, and the right to have a say in our government. Well, I would say dedicated, but even more than that, I would say ordinary people. I mean, that's what really jumps out to me when I study history is that the really big changes that we tend to identify with great men or great movements or whatever really have a much deeper story. And that story is ordinary people who just couldn't take it one day longer or who just put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, one of the things that worries me deeply about the recent Florida curricula for Social studies, that curriculum that everybody was talking about was not just history, it was social studies. And what it stripped out was not only indigenous history and a lot of black history and and many different aspects of history. What it really stripped out was the idea of agency, of ordinary people having agency. And one of the, the books that really made a huge impact on me was a book about four women who were in the Philippines, and this isn't in the book, this is just a, a book that mattered to me, were in the Philippines during World War II, and they become known as the Angels of the Underground and become crucial to the Filipino resistance to the occupation during the war. And what I love about them is they're totally ordinary people. I mean, one of the women, it's a bit of a spoiler, but I'm going to give it to you because everyone should read the book. One of the women, literally, the Japanese round everybody up and they say, you know, you just got to come down and get signed in and then we'll let you go home again. And all of her friends do it. Everybody says they're going to go get their names registered and they're going to go back home. And she goes along with them and she gets down to where they're going to write her name in a book right before the Japanese soldiers get there to do it. And of course, the the punchline here is the Japanese soldiers are going to take these people away. They're not going to return them. But nobody knows that. She gets there just like everybody else to be enrolled. And she has a panic attack and she can't, you know, she has a panic attack. She can't stay. And her friends are like, come on, 10 more minutes. Come on, just stay, stay and get enrolled. And then you can go home. She's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm having a panic attack. So she leaves and goes back home and becomes the only person who doesn't get rounded up because she had a panic attack. It's not like she woke up and said, I'm going to be a hero. She woke up and said, I'm going to do what everybody else did. But she has a panic attack. She goes back. She hides in her apartment, and because she's alone, she sits there and she observes the Japanese soldiers. So she knows what the Japanese soldiers are going to do. And the other characters in the book are like that. It's a true story. The other characters in the book are like that, and I love that because I think so many people, because of the way that we have previously understood the civil rights movement, for example, 
start to think that it takes that dedicated individual. It takes a Dr. King. It takes a Rosa Parks. It takes some great hero. When the reality is, I think great change comes from people who just do the right thing. And that right thing might be as simple as going to work one more goddamn day because you're going to put food on the table for your kids. Or it might be, you know, being Fannie Lou Hamer and saying, I'm going to register people to vote even if you kill me. And that incremental, I'm just going to do the right thing for five more minutes, I think at the end of the day is the American story. And it's the story that has made America great, if you will forgive me for saying so. I think that's a great way to end. So the book is Democracy Awakening. Notes on the State of America, Heather Cox Richardson. I'm so grateful for you to have taken the time to speak with us today on That Said. Thank you so much, and I'm hoping that this book gets wide attention. It should be, in my view, required reading throughout freshman colleges and and then beyond. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here. It's been a great deal of fun. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas Podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas Podcast today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.